SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 19 with guest Peter Myers. So our guest in the show is Peter Myers. Peter is a mentor and trainer with Solar Quality Learning. I was going to say based in Melbourne, Australia, but I'd say more loosely based in Melbourne, Australia, given the fact I see Peter in various places all over the world. So welcome, Peter. Thank you, Greg. So maybe again, like everybody else, I'll get you first up just to describe how you came to be involved with SQL Server at all. So as I scratch my head here, I have to really think about it, and I think this is my 10th year involved with SQL Server. And, uh, you know, my background is with a Bachelor of Business in Economics and had no idea even at um, school I'd have any interest in computers. But what sort of happened was uh, working in bulk shipping, as was my expertise with chartering vessels and operating ships, um, up in Gladstone of Queensland of all places. That doesn't actually, uh, in another life, I actually worked for HP and I used to often be involved in ships and things out of Gladstone and uh, quite intriguing. I won't say it's the most scenic town, but... It had great shipping operations. The point there was that being an expert in shipping, um, got involved in writing a scheduling system for for a shipping um, company, and Access 97 was the tool of the day, Mm -hmm. and I spent probably about 18 months building this front-end and and database application and really sifted through books and learnt all I could and and really couldn't get enough. Um, And, you know, I guess the progress was that once I'd finished this in Access, I decided, well, I could have a career in shipping, um, and that didn't hold much promise anyway. <laughs> There's only so far you can go in this country. Or, you know, IT. It just provided me a passport that could cross all industries, and I thought, mm. look, this would be great. And so at that point I thought, well, let's go for the IT jobs and found that um, not many people were going to take a shipping expert that had worked in access. So that's when I sort of took back to India where I'd done a fair amount of travel and uh, and work, actually. Um, and I said, okay, let's go and... Um, consolidate all of my knowledge and, and achieve certifications and that was the SQL Server seven times so made the switch over then and um, um, became certified and, and became experienced and then came back to Australia and landed that job. Hmm. With with the shipping did you find that uh, the shipping industry as a whole was uh, kind of forward-looking or the I must admit the involvement I had with it it was kind of uh, often very much behind the times, so I don't know. What you find is any any job of, of um, you know, that's going to be interesting or hold good responsibility or even career promise is going to be overseas. Mm. And so you'd need to move to Singapore or you'd need to move somewhere like that. And, and the limitations were, were there, and I guess... I decided, could I do this for another 30 years? <laughs> and, and the truth was, no, I couldn't. Great work. It got you out on board ships. It got you working with stevedores and all sorts of things and 24-hour uh, seven work as well. But um, really, once I got a taste for IT, I decided that was the path I'd take. Yeah, it's great. Actually, one of the, uh, the, the stories I, I quite recall from uh, working with uh, some various ships uh, was a, a thing that led me to sort of see people have just blind faith in computing. I, I had... Uh, 
I recall doing some work for one company. Uh, I was up in Mackay, uh, which is in far north Queensland for the people uh, listening, or t- towards the top end of Australia. And uh, I was doing work on some sort of HP 3000 mini computers and so on, and uh, I got a call from the office saying, can you go out and have a look at one of these old, I think it was a 9810 or something, but it was some old HP calculator thing that, I mean, I'd seen one in the office once, but I had no real idea uh, anything about it. So they shipped me one up to play with uh, so I could do that for a couple of hours, and then I had to go down and sort of try and fix one that was coming in on a coal ship. And um, what had me totally intrigued, first of all, it was on one of these coal loading facilities a couple of kilometres out into the ocean, and so that was kind of interesting, going out the end there and then wondering how to get on the ship, which was intriguing. So they put a big uh, crane thing that they turned around and dropped down, and I stood up on it, and it was like this joy flight going through the air across onto, onto the ship. But the thing that had me intrigued was uh, they were using it for stress calculations on the ship. And uh, the thing didn't even have, like, parity checking. And you could do the same calculation twice in a row and be out by hundreds of tonnes. And uh, and the beautiful thing was that they just had complete faith in it. They would just do the calculation once and use the result. <laughs> and uh, probably find 100 tonnes isn't probably here or there. <laughs> <laughs> it just had me totally fascinated. I had visions of this thing breaking in two in the middle of the ocean on the way back. But yeah. Anyway, it just struck me as amazing because of the people who'd written the application... Uh, back in Liverpool many, many years ago, had since left the company, of course, and no one knew how it worked, and they just kept using it, and uh, uh, they, they could easily have rewritten the thing on some handheld calculator, and it would have actually done a better job. Well, but, it sounds uh, like there's a business opportunity for it. <laughs> <laughs> you're, anyway. talking, you're talking Hay Point there, by the way. Yes, that was the yeah, Hay yeah. Point Mackay, yeah. yeah. But anyway, uh, I diverge. <laughs> so so uh, what about analysis services? So that's the, sort of the topic for today. So how did you get involved with analysis services in particular? Yeah, 2000. So I'd, I'd worked um, on a number of um, actually smaller projects to begin with. So I got my hands dirty with analysis services in 2000. Um, didn't really get involved with it in 7 at all. I think it was somewhat embryonic in those days. Um, then came up an opportunity to do a round of training for Microsoft. So Terry Clancy had um, championed this course called Zero to BI. Um, they were in need of a trainer for it, and it was like, okay, yes, I've worked with it before, and yes, I think I can deliver training in it. In fact, Greg, you were in one of my classes. Yes, I was. I, I actually sat in one of the classes. It was great. It was a decent email too, so thanks for that. <laughs> and uh, so pretty much uh, worked with it. Um, I found that since I got training in it that I ended up doing more repair work than construction work using it. Um, but pretty much that was my first taste, working with multidimensional systems. Uh, it certainly, um, for me, it demystified what a multidimensional database could possibly be because I think when you come from that relational background, um, you know, you think of those days where you're learning primary keys, foreign keys, and you're building up this knowledge incrementally. And then all of a sudden, you know somewhere on the horizon there's this multidimensional database which tends to um, say to us that, oh, my God, it's going to be, you know, um, to the power of 10 more complex than what a relational database could be. So I found it great to to get my hands dirty with it and then to really um, discover that they're not as complex as they sound. Yeah. In fact, yeah, I did quite enjoy the course, actually, <laughs> I remember. But uh, So I suppose maybe for particularly developers or DBAs that haven't been involved in it, uh, listening to the show, so what's the interest in analysis services? Why does it matter? Where does it fit in? Yeah. Um, Analysis service is there as as an OLAP system. So most of us as DBAs are, are well and truly familiar with OLTP, online transaction processing, that we're writing systems or designing systems that are optimised for write-intensive operations. 
This is the other side of the coin with OLAP, the online analytical processing, saying, well, now it's time to retrieve that data. And we can all probably write a select statement, probably no problems with that. But can we write a select statement that's going to be really um, really efficient in the way it retrieves its information? For example, go and give me sales by, uh, by month, by sales region, by product, by sales person. Uh, all of a sudden, when you start grouping by, if we think of a, a relational select statement, um, and we say, well, bring back the single value that's going to be the group by and the sum of sales. Look, potentially, that could be you know, millions of records coming from a table in a database. And we all appreciate that what's involved in retrieving that and, and caching the data and then presenting that single value is expensive. Um, and if you want to maintain high concurrency, you, you'll find that will impact other users um, wanting to share the resources on the database. So where the OLAP side fits in is that these systems have been optimised and designed specifically to handle these high-level aggregate queries. Um, by definition, an OLAP engine is there to provide um, aggregate results, um, to do it fast, to provide flexible um, querying against it, and also to supplement it with a calculations layer so we can then embellish it with interesting calculations like year-to-date or moving month average. And, and this specifically is what an OLAP system and Microsoft's implementation with analysis services has been designed to achieve. So you started to touch there on what sounded awfully like dimensions. So uh, Time for definitions? Yes, time for definitions, I think. You know, the way I like to think of it is, and where I sit with my clients at requirement gathering time, it's a matter of saying, well, what do you need from your system? What information is going to drive your decision-making process? And you listen very carefully for a very small word, buy. All right. Wherever they say I need it, the information by time, I need to know it by geography, I need to know it by account, uh, they're usually introducing the concept that a dimension would be required to constrain the result coming back from a system. So your classic dimensions in a multidimensional database would be time. Uh, if we think of a sales system, we'd want to constrain by product, uh, perhaps by um, store, um, perhaps by customer. All right, so when we introduce these buys, we're talking usually about a dimension, and usually these dimensions are hierarchical in nature. So if we think of something like a product dimension, we'll see it will have levels like category, subcategory to product. And this introduces the ability for the OLAP engine to aggregate at different levels very efficiently. It really comes down to the design of the dimensions themselves. So that buy word is going to introduce a dimension or possibly a level within that dimension. You might hear sometimes that your client says, I need to see um, by product category or sometimes by individual product. Um, and there's two potential levels within a product dimension itself. So uh, usually an interesting dimension is time. It's, it's, it's always a common dimension to a cube. In fact, I've never come across a cube that doesn't care about time. So you'll well um, find that time is, is a dimension that's there that supports um, usually one or two hierarchies. Um, financial hierarchies might provide a fiscal way to, to, to drill down through data through a hierarchy like fiscal year, fiscal quarter to month to date, if that's the granularity that you need to assess your data at. Um, you might also consider um, a calendar hierarchy in there as well or manufacturing hierarchy and such forth. Um, because our analysis usually centres around time-based analysis, um, you'll find that a time dimension is, is usually one of the first considerations in your design. Mm. So. That's dimensions, so other terminology, we uh, started to throw the word measure in there, so... Concept of about a measure, right, so what are we interested in analysing? 
Um, there is a concept called a star schema, and, and this may be familiar to some, or you may well have heard of it, or you may well not. Like every Microsoft presentation we go to, they show pictures of star and snowflake schemas. Let's go ahead and demystify that, because if there's any uh, any queries about what that means. So if you consider your relational databases, um, we're well and truly familiar with the normalized structure. Okay, we see those spiderweb designs of entity relationship diagrams. Um, the process here at design time for particularly data warehouses or data marts is to use what's called a star schema that says, well, let's go ahead and concern ourselves with these dimensions that we've already introduced. Uh, the other type of table we would consider would be a fact table. Now, the fact table there is responsible for storing your measures of interest. So typically we think of these measures as those numeric values, usually aggregatable, um, that we wish to analyze. So referring back to the sales example, uh, we've got a cube, or rather, sorry, a database with time and product and customer dimensions, but what are we interested to know at the intersection of those dimensions? So sales dollars, units sold, could be two classic measures that we would find. So in our star schema, we would then introduce a fact table that has these two columns, and then the additional columns would then be the dimension keys that would then break down by uh, a particular product, customer, or date. And that's the concept then of a fact table. Now, the reason why it's called a star schema is um, because if you can imagine the fact table sitting at the center of this star, um, the dimension tables then form points on the star. Okay, you might need to use a bit of an imagination there, particularly if you've only got three points on that star, being time, customer, and product. Um, we can then extend beyond that to say, okay, you've introduced Greg as Snowflake. Uh, usually what you'll find is that these dimension tables are denormalized. And remember, denormalization is, is an optimization for a read of a system because there's um, less need to join data, so you're going to get better read response. So usually in our design, we'll find that those dimension tables uh, will be denormalized. For example, a time dimension table, which may be populated with every day that you expect your, um, your systems to, to analyze across time, uh, you would find that that would be denormalized. You would have a year column. Uh, maybe a calendar year column, calendar quarter, month, and date. And, of course, you'd expect to see repeat values in those columns for year and quarter and such forth. Now, if you want to normalise that, um, it's not usually a recommended practice, but if you did, you might find, for example, that your product dimension gets broken into a product category with a one-to-many relationship to product subcategory, in turn a one-to-many relationship to product. And together, those three dimension tables um, would form a snowflake. And again, if you could imagine that that point on the star then has tables moving out from it with those relationships, it begins to resemble a snowflake. It's mm. good. In terms of other definitions, I suppose when we go to query uh, the things that we then build with the aggregated values and so on, uh, we end up with select statements and things that look... Uh, well, the word select looks about the most familiar thing and, and the rest of it tends to not as we head into uh, multidimensional extensions to the language. So what's the basic idea there? Right, so moving forward in the progress there, when we query the star schema, we would still be using the relational select statement. Okay, now the star schema is an ideal starting point for constructing a cube and, and once we've built that cube and defined our dimension objects and our measure groups off the star schema, we then go through a process of processing. Well, in fact, we provide the instruction to analysis services to say, right, go and process. And the default process says, 
under a MOLAP configuration, which stands for multi-dimensional OLAP. Go and extract all of the data from that star schema. Um, go ahead and compress it into an external cache that lives on the file system, which then is optimized for querying against. And they are queries that will be directed to the analysis service itself. Now, the query language that we use for analysis services is MDX, which stands for multidimensional expressions. Uh, you know, some people will refer to it as mind-destroying expressions. Actually. <laughs> so be aware that there are actually two interpretations on that acronym. <laughs> now, as far as the similarities, when um, MDX was designed, it, it lent, or rather it borrowed as much as it could from the, the relational select statement. Um, that's good and that's bad because sometimes what we find is that... Um, we're familiar with select and from and where, um, but they play in, in sometimes significantly different roles here in MDX. And what we'll find sitting on the select statement is not a comma-separated value or, sorry, separated list of columns, but rather our definitions of what should appear on the axes. Because what we need to recognise is querying from a multidimensional structure, you're bringing back a sub-cube which in its own right can have its own dimensions. So essentially in the query, you're defining the dimensions that will come back. And Commonly, we will work with two because from a human consumption point of view, uh, working with three dimensions um, is quite difficult to, to, um, to represent, let alone interpret. So if we work <laughs> with the anything two... Anything more than three, very, very difficult to imagine. Yeah. That's what it's frightening. And, and, and what I would really love to do is demystify it. Why a mul while a multidimensional database could be complex, what you'll find is that you know it's there to support... Um, a great deal of what could be complex analysis, but the way you retrieve the data doesn't necessarily have to be complex. We still have to bear in mind that there are humans somewhere at the end of that chain mm -hmm. that need to go ahead and consume the data. So when we construct the first clause of our select statement, um, we're saying, okay, what will reside on the axes? And the two axes we're concerned with would be the columns and the rows. And what we do is we define members on there, and those members are from the dimensions themselves. So perhaps we say on the columns, go and give me all of the um, quarters for 2003. And then down on the rows, go ahead and give me um, the product categories that we have. Now, having defined what members live on those axes, then we would then need to say, well, okay, what do we want to see at the intersection of those members? So mm -hmm. for bike categories for quarter three, 2004, what value do we expect to see? What do we see, yeah. Okay, so that's the select part. We haven't introduced what we see yet. Uh, well, not as the data anyway. Now, the from clause um, is pretty straightforward from a single cube. You can't join cubes like mm. you might join tables, so it's fairly straightforward that you simply say, right, it will be from this cube, end of story. All right, and then the where clause um, is somewhat different to what we have in the relational world in that, in that you can't get so fancy by using lots of logical operators and end this and all that. Essentially, what you need to define is a single tuple and I'm sort of afraid uh, to start yes. introducing too much. Tuple, tuple, yes. But tuple or tuple. We're, we're going to have to define that word, the acronym police. Let's go ahead and say that a tuple really is um, an address to a cell in the cube in a way. Mm -hmm. So basically you can define within a tuple, or I prefer tuple, <laughs> it really doesn't matter which you choose, uh, is that you would say, all right, with all the dimensions sitting on the cube, you could lock in a member from each dimension. So for example, give me quarter one 2003 give me product category bikes and go and give me the customer xyz um, and then the measure of interest is that i want sales amount now if you lock in those members on each dimension um, then you will return a single cell from this multi-dimensional structure which will give you the answer that you're looking for mm -hmm. so the where clause consists of this single tuple and we refer to it as the slicer because that's how we're going to filter so we may well go in there and say that while we have on the axes 
time on the columns and products on the rows, we could then go and filter with a tuple that says, go and give me customer XYZ and sales amount. And then that would define what would then be at the intersection of those two axes. Cool. Okay. It's not as difficult as it sounds, actually. It's a matter of just playing around with it, seeing the result and going, ah, if I change that, that's what happens. Um, but essentially, that's how the where clause works. Yeah. The other key element, I suppose, is how we get the data into the analysis services database in the first place. Right. So that that's actually a lot easier than MDX, I'll tell you. <laughs> so if we're talking analysis services 2005, and indeed these days we should, um, when we construct and design the cube, one of the cornerstones to it is, is a new object um, called a data source view. So when we create a project in, in Business Intelligence Development Studio, which is the only way you can create cubes uh, here in 2005, the, the first part of the recipe says, go ahead and define a data source. And for those familiar with 2000, um, nothing different there. You simply point it at your data source, provide the server name and credentials. Second part is new, and that is to uh, design a data source view. Now. The way that we think about this is like a virtual schema. We can go ahead and we can design this data source view to be based on one or more data sources. So there's one of the first benefits of working with a data source view is that we can use it to bridge different data sources together. So you may have an Oracle database, uh, an Access database, and SQL database, no problem. Define three data sources, then in your data source view, introduce objects, as in tables of views, from those three data sources. Now. We can additionally define relationships that may link those tables, if indeed there are relationships. But I will add a note there that generally, if you are relating systems like this, that um, the usual approach is to create a data warehouse and using an ETL process with extract, transform, and load. Uh, with a product like integration services, you would typically combine this data into a single data source uh, and then build a cube off it. But nonetheless, the data source view does provide this provision. The next benefit is where we're not happy with the actual structure of the underlying system. Um, I tell you what, database owners aren't happy when you start saying that for my OLAP system I need this column or I need you to rename it to something that works for me. The data source view provides this level of abstraction whereby you can go ahead and override what the underlying system actually defines for both the table names and the column names. You can also embellish it with your own calculations. You can indeed introduce what we call named queries, which are essentially select statements that behave as tables in your new schema, the data source view. So the benefits there are multiple data sources can be linked. You can go ahead and modify without modifying the actual data source itself um, to go ahead and, and uh, let's say, clean up the underlying source. Uh, another benefit there is that you can go ahead and um, work disconnected. So once you've actually built the data source view, great, disconnect your laptop, go home, and you can continue to develop and design your cubes. Having then built this data source view, it's the very cornerstone of your design, you then build your cubes on top of it. So once the cubes have been built, or rather designed, you need to go through the concept of a process. Now for analysis services, it has three storage modes, and the default and most common is the MOLAP, and I made mention of this earlier. Yeah. Multidimensional OLAP says at process time, go and retrieve the data via this data source view structure, um, compress it and store it in file cache. Now that works for both the dimension members, so all your customers in the dimension, custo uh, the customer dimension, and all your facts sitting in the fact table that might comprise of your sales amounts and, and quantities. Mm. Now the concept of MOLAP is 
that it's the pre preferred, and it's preferred because it actually provides the best performance at query time. Because it's pre-aggregated values. Well, there's two parts of the process. Mm. One part is that it actually extracts the detailed values straight mm. from the records in your fact table. The second part, according to your design, is that it will actually aggregate the data as well. Mm. Um, and aggregation is what buys you performance. It's actually the heart and soul of an OLAP system. Uh, and the equivalent of what we know indexes will achieve for us in the relational world. Mm. So two parts happen at processing time. Extract the base data from the fact table, then go ahead and design degrees of aggregation. And analysis services permits you to design aggregation that might be constrained by disk space, might be constrained by a performance gain. For example, I'm looking for a 30% improvement. Uh, it might also be designed based on usage patterns. So there is a logging feature of analysis services that will capture querying. You will log those, and then it will use intelligent algorithms to assess usage and therefore def define algorithms around that, or, excuse me, um, aggregations. Mm -hmm. Because when you stop and think about this multidimensional structure, we're talking, you know, even a simplistic situation like I've introduced that you might have, you know, 10 products, um, 365 days for one year, and, you know, a half dozen customers, that when you multiply all possible members and consider the levels in hierarchies also, that the number of possible cells in this cube is, is almost mind-blowing. Beyond comprehension, yes. So indeed. if you attempt to pre-calculate and store all those pre-aggregates, you're going to find that that's um, going to introduce data explosion. And this is a mm -hmm. historical weakness of OLAP. Um, so we need to be intelligent about this and say, well, okay, well, let's use um, designs that will selectively aggregate. Mm -hmm. And analysis services are smart enough to reuse those and, and still perform some aggregation at query time, but it will rely on other aggregations that have been pre-calculated. So back to the process. It will extract all of the fact data and, according to your aggregation design, bring in and calculate and store those aggregates. That's for MOLAP. Great performance, but it suffers a typical problem of latency mm. because the process is only as current as, well, excuse me, the data is as only as current as the last process. Yeah. And so that historical weakness lends itself then to say, well, if it's important to have real time, we'll take a look at the other end of the spectrum that is ROLAP or relational OLAP, in which case your fact data remains in your star schema. Aggregates can be calculated and stored in the relational world. You will get a real-time response, but don't expect it to be fast. Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't look for it in a hurry. A short mention for, for Holap, because there is an intermediate called yeah. hybrid, and that means leave the details in the fact table. The aggregates would be calculated and left in the multidimensional world. And it's an ideal compromise if you recognise that data rarely, or rather queries, are rarely directed down at the leaf level or the fact grain that you have. Mm. Um, the only problem is it's sort of a nice theory, but you may well find that the processing of it and the extra aggregations that it needs to build means that you could have probably done that in MOLAP. Yes. And if you did get away with it and felt it was a good compromise, users will be confused that sometimes their queries are fast and sometimes they're slow, mm. as it has to has to um, teeter between yeah. the two um, systems. That's great. Well, that's probably a good point to stop for a break, and uh, we'll be back in a minute. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular... The first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www 
www.sequeldownunder.com. So welcome back from the break. So what we might do, as usual again also, Peter, is just anything you're willing to share with us about uh, yourself or hobbies or where you live or... Um, Anything you're interested in? The life behind the presenter. The life behind Peter. There is a life there. I, I sometimes struggle to find it myself. I have to scratch deeply at times. Um, because I have to say, for the last two years, like particularly with um, the Yukon ramp-up and, and the release, I've been amazingly flat out. And yes, it has been my choice to do this, but it's almost like, um, in a sense, I'm quite greedy to continue learning and, and being um, you know, very much on the crest of, of what's going on. Mm-hmm. For me personally, the BI space is really exciting, so I think we'll return to that later, though. <laughs> Um, just a bit of background about myself, I guess. You know, there is a human behind there somewhere, and um, yeah, I live in St Kilda, Melbourne. Um, when I'm here, and uh, having recently uh, purchased the property, well, it's actually a year ago now, but I'm still going through renovations, so that's been taking up a fair amount of time when I've been in my home city. Um, from a personal point of view, um, pretty much a homebody. But um, what a lot of people may not know is that um, I play piano, and I've been classically trained for. Well, I think I've learnt for about 20 years, so that's my refuge. And, and I, I often share this story um, with friends to say that, you know, when I'm working as a developer, and I still do a fair bit of web development in there as well, um, you know when you have those times, Greg, when your mind just seizes, like the logic is too much mm-hmm. and it's three in the morning and, and I know it's due tomorrow morning, but I cannot think any further. Part of it is I often need to just get up and walk around for a minute. <laughs> well, you know what I find is that, you know, one half of the brain just needs a rest, and the piano mm-hmm. sits right opposite my desk of this beautiful mm-hmm. little grand piano. And I'll sit there and I might play, uh, you know, for 10 minutes. And what is amazing is you'll switch back and your other half of the brain has actually worked it out for yes. you. Yes. It, it's really quite amazing. So I find it quite complimentary that, that, that music and uh, IT and logic actually work very well. I often that. discuss that. I've had a couple of shows where we've talked about that and I hear uh, guys like Carl Franklin talk about it endlessly. You, you look at the number of guys involved in music uh, who are also involved in IT development type way. There simply has to be a direct relationship between the two because there are just far too many people do both. There's something about the way the mind works. and I mean, music is in one sense purely mathematical, you know, and I've, I've trained in a lot of theory and, and such forth. And, and yes, you could break music down into mathematical formulae, um, but, you know, the interpretation of music is where the human and personal side comes in. Mm. And for me, that's quite rewarding. So, you know, while I have a TV set at home, um, it probably doesn't get turned on once a month. Yeah. I would rather sit in front of the piano and, and interpret some music, and, and that to me is far more of a pastime than, than um, yeah, must have entertainment been, uh, pushed at me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I must have been. Uh, there's a whole lot of uh, the music I like. I, in the, the 70s and early 80s, I was playing sort of heavy rock uh, type stuff in bands and things. But uh, I must admit, I'm pretty laid back now. So I mean, I must admit, uh, things like James Taylor and uh, things like that tend to appeal uh, greatly at this Don't point. That's right. You're in a band yourself. Oh, for many years, yeah. In fact, I was uh, very pleased. I bought some tickets to go and see Elton John uh, when he's in town in December, actually. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I saw him last time he was in town, and it was a it was uh, great fun. Actually, I also noticed Eric Clapton coming in February next year, but it was already too late to get uh, tickets. Even for oh, about yeah. $300 uh, for two tickets, you were kind of behind the stage. And I thought, no, thanks. You know, I, I can buy about 10 of uh, his albums for that. I, you know. It's extraordinary. And the thing is, those tickets will sell. Oh, they will. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. So We're living in an economic boom time, and it's fantastic. <laughs> and we're seeing this in an IT sense as well, that, you know, IT and, and, and demand for quality resources just isn't keeping up. Mm. 
Um, That's good. Well, yeah. listen, but with analysis services, um, the other thing is, what, what's different in 2005 compared to 2000? I'm sure you will have told people this. I've seen you at too many roadshows uh, a million times, but what's the difference? You know, it's an acronym called UDM. All right, so UDM standing for Unified Dimensional Model. Now, what this actually means is, um, you know, we had cubes and multidimensional databases in, in SQL Server 7, actually, as OLAP services, but it really didn't become mature until Analysis Services 2000. But what we needed to appreciate with Analysis Services 2000, that while it was a pretty hot product, and hey, all bundled together with your SQL Server license also, um, was that it was somewhat limiting when it came time to reporting from. You know, certainly it, it met the requirements of flexible and fast querying, particularly for aggregate-level uh, queries. But when it came to rich reporting, it let us down. So, for example, if we had those dimensions of time, product, and customer, and we said, all right, let's construct a report from that, and I want to break it down by product category, but, you know, I also want to know what the product color was. You say, well, hold on a minute. Dimensions in 2000 consisted of, of hierarchies only, and we could have had a hierarchy there that said category, subcategory, product. Well, where did color fit into that? Now, there were workarounds in Analysis Services 2000s that we could introduce member properties and we could go ahead and we could um, build virtual dimensions off those, um, but there were certain prices to pay for doing this and, and at the end of the day, scalability and performance would lose out. So this has been addressed in the re-architecture of Analysis Services in 2005 and essentially the product has been rewritten completely. The entire engine, the architecture of the cubes themselves uh, and how their design has changed. So and certainly all the tools as well. I must admit, I, I thought in 2000 the tools, uh, how would you say, didn't look like a Microsoft product, maybe. <laughs> Let's just say I don't miss those modal dialogue windows mm -hmm. where you had to address what you needed to do there and, and it was quite klutzy and clumsy um, working in the design. So, yeah, that's all gone. Um, what we've got now is, is the integrated development environment that developers will appreciate provides a rich environment, um, business intelligence development studio is how we refer to it from a SQL Server point of view, but essentially that is the SQL Server license to access Visual Studio. And yes, it is the development environment for all the BI platform, from integration to analysis to reporting. So the development environment's um, a great start. Mm -hmm. It says that we've got a, a more professional environment that promotes uh, working with teams and source control for metadata and such forth. Mm. Um, but, but moving on to... What I was going to ask, actually, and for the databases themselves, any specific considerations in terms of uh, hardware or resources or things compared to normal databases? Well, well sure. Or, sorry, I use the word normal loosely, but uh, OLTP databases. There, there, is, there is consideration here, and, and what we need to appreciate is that typically query requests to an OLAP engine are going to be far more diverse in the data they're requesting than what an OLTP system is. Recognising for a start that OLTP is write intensive, that, that generally the retrieval from it is minimal. And yet, if you imagine uh, an OLAP server and, and the databases that it's hosting, um, and in turn the cubes that are in those databases, you've got a situation where one user might be requesting um, data across the last five years on one axis, and then you've got another user simultaneously wants to know what's going on across all these sales territories. Um, that while you might be striving um, to have hardware that will meet, for example, in the relational world, um, a buffer cache hit ratio of 
that that's pretty cool. You'll probably find the inverse that what you'll find is that you know the the, the vast requirements to retrieve data across this multidimensional system might mean you get significantly lower, and you have to accept that you're going to get lower. So one of the vital ingredients uh, when factoring um, together your hardware requirements is to say, well, how much memory? <laughs> you know, mm. memory is is really really important from a querying perspective. We'd like to see that we could potentially cache the entire database if possible. Now for extremely huge cubes, that's not going to be uh, possible, but as much as we can catch. Now, from a point of processing, then you're really going to put a burden on a processor. Now, of course, it will want lots of memory as well to retrieve the data from the source systems. But in order to go ahead and process and um, design and process those aggregations, um, you want processor grunt. So you've got two sides to the equation, and you need to factor your querying versus processing. But essentially, we're saying, right, you want a grunty machine. Um, but again, this comes down to how long that piece of string is. I mean, mm -hmm. what size is your cube? Uh, what number of users do you have? And, and how diverse are the queries that they will be submitting? Um, a consideration there, particularly for OLAP, is, is to seriously consider a 64-bit platform. So, of course, this overcomes many of the memory limitations that we've had on the 32-bit platforms. Um, OLAP databases are memory-hungry. Mm. Right? So that's a consideration that you would have. Yeah. Now, another thing on an allied note is just the different editions of SQL Server uh, when, when we're buying licenses. Uh, there seemed to be a big impetus in 2000 to get the Enterprise Edition in terms of some of its capabilities compared to the uh, the standard edition. What about in 2005? Yeah, from a relational point of view, you know, uh, historically the difference between Enterprise and Standard has been your scalability and availability feature set, and that still applies to the BI set. Um, now, focusing on analysis services tonight, uh, the availability, scalability still applies. So when it comes to processing time, standard edition says you may only have one partition, which is the storage for your, um, I was going to say cube, but it's mm. really the measure group because cubes now support multiple fact tables in 2005. So where you find that processing takes significant amounts of times, so you could use with the enterprise edition a partitioning strategy that says, right, well, let's use partitions based on a time slice. Let's have January sales in this partition and February in this partition and such forth. And then at processing time, you only need to touch um, and reprocess the partitions where you know the data has changed for them. All right, so you'll get that with Enterprise Edition. That's one of the key features. Mm -hmm. um, the other features that you've got include proactive caching. Now, proactive caching is a way of saying, well, we recognize that weakness with MOLAP that it has a latency issue, that it's only as current as the last process. Uh, using a proactive caching policy, you can actually say, well, according to notifications, the underlying data sources can actually tell analysis services the data has changed, and it will automatically go and reprocess itself. And this way, you can bring uh, the best of Rollapp into Molapp. We still get great query performance, but we get near real-time um, data. Proactive caching is the, the other compelling reason. Uh, moving on to uh, perspectives. So building up these cubes, um, and I touched on the concept of unified dimensional model. Just want to add there that you know the unified dimensional model provides best perspective of relational and dimensional reporting. Our dimensions, a significant change in 2005, are now attribute-based, unlike the hierarchy that they were in 2005. So what this means is your dimension now consists of a series of attributes, and we referred to the limitation I said earlier that you might want to report on product and have the category, the name, and the color, which didn't appear in a hierarchy. Well, 
what we'll find now is our dimensions will really just be a collection of attributes that map to the columns in our dimension table that, that describe the entities that we, we want to report against. Now, the deal here is that dimensions are now a collection of these attributes, um, which truly are hierarchies, but we don't refer to them as such. As a hierarchy, it contains an all level, if you don't wish to constrain by it, and then has a single level beneath that that would contain all of the distinct values from the column that it's based on. So, for example, a colour attribute would say, right, there's an all level or each distinct colour that we have within our dimension product table. Now, what this says is that um, attributes are first-class citizens in a dimension, but, of course, we still want to navigate across hierarchies to, to be able to summarise or, or, or drill down through data. So we can build hierarchies off attributes. And so you might have an attribute that is category, an attribute that's subcategory, an attribute that's product. And we can then assemble those and say, well, they become levels in a hierarchy. So that's just referring back to what the unified dimensional model is. It presents a one-stop shop to query across uh, potentially all of the enterprise's data. Um, now, the reason I introduce this is because these models now could be quite um, overwhelming for an end user to then to address and say, well, I just want to get the answer to my question. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're giving me 15 dimensions and 20 measure groups. Uh, the perspectives is an enterprise feature that says you can narrow down the visibility and you can say, right, I'll introduce a perspective that says this is the sales perspective and it just makes visible through that perspective relevant dimensions, measures yeah. and other things, which we'll talk about shortly. Uh, so the deal here is enterprise edition only, and they are exposed as individual cubes, so you can query mm. them as if they were cubes. As, as though it was a cube. Yeah, yeah. but I'll make the mm. note they're not a security mechanism. Mm -hmm. And the other enterprise edition feature is um, translations, which is really cool. If you're working in multi-dimensional, um, multinational mm -hmm. systems, you can go ahead and say, right, using Windows Locale, let's create a translation to French. Uh, you can then say, right, the name of measures and dimensions can also be translated and dimension members if you have columns in your tables that provide the translations for your products or customers and so on um, can also be translated now reporting service itself a little bit of a shot in the arm with analysis services in this edition yes a much asked for feature so while we could take uh, reporting services in 2000 and go ahead and, and uh, query using mdx um, we were limited when it came to building those queries. So there was an expectation that the developer actually knew MDX, yep. uh, and when it came to um, collecting parameter values from any user, it was a matter of then concatenating them into a dynamic yeah, it look, string. it looked pretty scary. Yeah. Uh, and it was scary. So the good news is that, you know, to, to further make analysis services approachable, um, there is now what's called... Um, the UDM Query Builder, or it sometimes goes mm -hmm. by the name of the Analysis Services Query Builder. Um, essentially, if you create a data source in reporting services that connects to Analysis Services 2005, and there is a particular provider for that, um, then in the report designer, you will then be presented with um, a, a query builder, which will just essentially say, well, here is the metadata pane that, that presents your dimensions and measures. Go and drag and drop them in. It will construct the MDX uh, and conform it to a relational set because that is the requirement that reporting services can only consume relational data. Mm -hmm. But it will coerce your selection into what appears to be relational um, and it supports parameterization also. Yeah. Any uh, basic tips and tricks in terms of ongoing maintenance of systems that are already in place with analysis services? Okay, with, with uh, the management, so you've started in Business Intelligence Development Studio, you've developed and tested your, your database and cubes, you've deployed them. Uh, really what needs to happen is um, they need to be maintained as far as um, the currency of their data. 
So referring to the default, if you're using a MOLAP system, which is typical, um, you would need to ensure that periodically that the data is then uh, reprocessed. So we find that ways to manage this might be that um, if you're using a data warehouse, you'll typically use something like integration services or an ETL tool to, mm -hmm. to populate the data warehouse. As part of the workflow there, you typically say, upon success of populating the data warehouse, there is an analysis services processing task that will go ahead and process your dimensions and your, um, your partitions. Um, the other approach is that you could go ahead and use a SQL Server agent and just do this periodically. Yeah, just schedule the thing. Yeah. With proactive caching, you find that that feature in Enterprise Edition means that there is um, no administrative intervention required. Mm -hmm. So that's one process is just keeping the data up to speed. As far as the um, care and feeding is concerned, you know, ensuring that it's optimal, you may need to revisit your aggregation designs. So mm -hmm. when you first implement your cubes, we talked about the aggregations and, and how it was not appropriate to aggregate every potential cell in a cube. Um, when you first deploy the cube, of course, you don't have a concept about how it's being queried. So the suggestion there is that you would configure the logging at the server level that would go ahead and log perhaps every one in ten queries. What, what about things like Profiler and so on, where we can actually capture workloads and do all that sort of stuff normally against OLTP databases and start to profile what's actually going on? Equivalence in that? Not really an equivalent. So mm. what you're talking about there is what the database... Tuning advisors or things like that. Yeah. yeah, what it comes down to is that you need to collect a sample of the queries, and analysis services um, with this configuration will allow you to log these queries. Yeah. Then you will come back and say, okay, for those partitions where I arbitrarily said give me a 30% improvement gain, mm -hmm. of course, how effective is that? We're not sure whether those aggregations are being used. Go ahead and use the usage-based optimization that says, right, Go and consume that those log queries, and now redesign the aggregations based on Basically, usage. Yeah, that's that's what I was sort of thinking. Because I mean, in terms of like a, a tuning, was the same thing. I mean, we put indexes in place that might not be getting used, that then have some overhead in place, but we might have ones that are missing, and so we have tools that help us with that. So that's the equivalent I was thinking in terms of the aggregations. In terms of the same sort of thing would have to happen in terms of revisiting that you're not got aggregations there that are creating overhead for no reason, but processing overhead, but alternately uh, there might be aggregations that are missing that would, that would help answer things. Yeah, it's certainly a balancing act because what you're trading off there is you're saying if I introduce aggregations then it's going to extend the processing and also consume resources to store those yeah, aggregations. larger database. So therefore you know, where is that optimal? And it's often a challenge. Mm -hmm. We don't have the fine-grained control that you're used to in the relational world, so you can't say, well let's drop that aggregation. You mm -hmm. don't actually get to manage it at such a granular level, mm -hmm. so there has to be some blind faith at some point. But the best thing you can really do to influence it is by using the usage based. Now it may even be a sense that you rig that by saying okay let's deploy it and let's just deliberately fire off lots of queries that we know will happen yeah. and then let's apply the usage based based mm. on those. Look that's all fascinating stuff so the the where can we see or what have you got coming up Pete? What's so happening? Okay um, we offer training so Solid Quality Learning do offer training in uh, the full suite of business intelligence for SQL Server. 2005, so uh, we have a five-day course um, that introduces um, integration services, analysis services, and reporting services, and we also have courses that would be three to four days of duration that would then go through um, those topics in a lot, lot more detail. But I will say that the five-day course provides you enough that you should be able to walk out of that course and say, right, I can control my own destiny here <laughs> and, and, and move forward with my own learning path. 
Um, what have you got coming up yourself? Well, interesting there because um, I'm just finishing off uh, co-authoring a course um, for Microsoft, which is um, a four-day course called, interestingly enough, um, Voyage to Microsoft BI. <laughs> it's something along those lines. I mean, when you think of the Ascend program and then you have Touchdown, this is the mm-hmm. third phase, which is now called Voyage. Microsoft have decided that you know once a product is then launched and, and is mature, um, they still need to uh, propagate information about how to to manage the systems. So the it's, it's not all about the destination; it's about the ride. And that, that's part of it. Well, it's about getting as many people on that ride as possible. So what we're finding is that um, that or Microsoft are finding that they really want to. Um, bring their ISVs up to speed with this platform. Mm. You know, business intelligence has always been this freaky concept that, you know, it's it's some back-end database world. And, and really, there's two parts to BI in my mind. There is the back-end side, and that's what SQL Server as a platform supports. Oh, it very much was a white coat brigade <laughs> uh, in, in many places. I think what intrigues me is the number of Microsoft products now that are starting to have analysis services as part of their own products. And I think that'll kind of legitimise... Uh, the product offering when they start using it themselves well, in their definitely. own products. SQL Server is just half the story. The other mm-hmm. half is what you actually do to exploit what that backend can so well manage. So the other half to that, and you know, we're all waiting at the end of our seats at the moment for um, Office 2007 because we now see the synchronization of Office to SQL Server 2005. And part of this workshop is to say, well, look, this is what the back end can do, and this is what the front end can do. And for you ISVs, well, there's an enormous amount of potential, and not just ISVs, but anybody. I mean, the the way that these applications or, or platforms rather have been designed is it's plug and play. They've been built to be as extensible as possible. Um, so for analysis services, if you want to extend it by you know building your own um, MDX functions, if you want to um, go ahead and and um, uh, work with data mining and its algorithms, and that's just something we haven't touched here, but that's another, uh, half another day we'll talk about data mining. But <laughs> the point here is great workshop that, that's you know really out there to present to people the potential, and, and that's the message I would like to think comes mm. out of this um, this podcast today, is that you know BI is for everyone, and Microsoft's concept about BI for the masses couldn't be truer. The technologies now are mature, they're now approachable, and uh, would really encourage anyone that's been shy of it to just take a look because I don't think it's as daunting as you'd think. That's great, Better. Well, listen, thank you for your time today. We had uh, planned to do this at TechEd, but we uh, uh, ran into all sorts of scheduling difficulties. And, uh, the best of intentions. Yes, it was kind of a, a very busy period, but no, it's been great to get the chance. It's uh, been a really notable uh, week in Australia for the, the people that uh, aren't locals. We've had... Uh, a number of notable people pass on, uh, which has been kind of intriguing. Uh, uh, we had um, Peter Brock, who's one of the sort of absolute champion uh, car drivers, a just complete legend status in the country, has sort of passed on. And uh, Colin Teal, who is a sort of a, a well-known author and uh, wrote uh, in particular a thing that became a movie called Storm Boy that was uh, very, very popular in the country. And uh, and probably the the best known internationally, of course, was Steve Irwin dying this week. So it's uh, it's uh, the the Crocodile Hunter Band, which has um, certainly been quite a week. Uh, I I, have, I noted on my blog actually, I was very privileged to have uh, to not live too far from where his uh, his Australia Zoo was, and I I have sort of seen uh, his show and things a number of times when he's there. And uh, I often used to say to people, um, you know, I've seen the show when he was there, and I've seen the show when he wasn't, and it was. Two very different shows. You know, the the guys that worked for him were very, very good and uh, very game. But I used to think Steve was just crazy. You know, and uh, <laughs> I, I thought it was just 
completely wonderful that he ended up going doing exactly what he loved doing so i mean it was just a so you know when my daughter sent me an sms and said he died i suppose i was uh sad but not surprised uh, because uh, just given the things i've seen him do uh, it, it i could never say it would surprise me but i think uh, the only surprise was it wasn't a crocodile <laughs> yeah that's right it wasn't that but uh, uh yeah. truly wonderful uh, local australian and just on that note yeah just mention his passing this week that's great well thank you very much for the show Greg, we'll and thank you talk for the to you again soon thank you <laughs>